0: You are listening to National Security Law Today.
1: Welcome to National Security Law Today, the podcast of the Standing Committee on Law and National Security. I'm Elisa Potet, and tonight we're going to talk about a lot of current events and national security actions that will inform the law. One of my guests tonight is Seth Jones, who is the author of many books, which I could talk to him about for hours, and I know you would enjoy hearing what he has to say. But in particular, one of them that I'm sure many people will be buying now is called How Terrorist Groups End. And another one is called Three Dangerous Men, Russia, China, Iran, and the Rise of Irregular Warfare. Seth, thanks so much for coming in.
0: It is great to be on. Thanks for having me.
1: All right, Seth, uh, President Biden announced more than a week ago now that Ayman al-Zawahiri was killed in a U.S. drone strike after he merged onto the balcony of his home in an upscale, to the extent there is one, upscale neighborhood in Kabul. He's come to be known for his role in the 9-11 attacks, but few people understand the real history of Mr. Zawahiri and how far back he goes. I know that you are aware of his activities going back decades. I am aware that he was among a group of people who was rounded up when Anwar al Sadat was assassinated in Egypt. So this man is gone. Why don't you give us the real history of Mr. Zawahiri that far exceeds anything that occurred on 9 11?
0: Well, I think what is important to understand is his background in kind of Egyptian militancy. And a range of the early Al Qaeda members came from various countries, including Saudi Arabia and Egypt. For Ayman al-Zawahiri, he was one of the key founders of Egyptian Islamic Jihad around 1973. Seven or eight years later, he was rounded up along with hundreds of other suspected members of a group that assassinated Anwar al-Sadat. As part of that arrest, what's interesting is Zawahiri becomes a very vocal, including a publicly vocal member, of the organization. At one point he's filmed telling the court, quote, we are Muslims who believe in our religion. We are trying to establish an Islamic state and Islamic society, end quote. He was apparently cleared of his direct involvement in Sadat's assassination, but nevertheless continues to become involved in various aspects of militancy. He is eventually released and then moves to Saudi Arabia and soon afterwards moves to Peshawar, Pakistan in the 1980s, where along with Osama bin Laden and others is involved in providing some assistance to the Mujahideen in Afghanistan from Pakistan, including from Peshawar. And that really in in August of 1988 is involvement along with several others. They gather together in bin Laden's house in Peshawar to form a new organization, which they refer to as Al-Qaeda Al-Ascariya, the military base. From that point on, he is involved really at the center of Al Qaeda leading up to the attacks in 1998, for example, at US embassy bombings in Tanzania and Kenya, 2000, and the USS Cole in Yemen. And then at various periods after that, 9 11, and then involved in various Al Qaeda operations and strategic level efforts through the death of Osama bin Laden in 2011, in which he then takes over as the head of the organization. So he moves really from those early years in Egyptian militancy to Pakistan, spent some time at various places after the withdrawal from uh, Pakistan in the Balkans. But it's got a really interesting, almost global reach before his involvement in Al-Qaeda.
1: All right, so that's interesting. What it sounds like he was sort of flashing to very early on was a statement that he wanted to establish a caliphate or a new caliphate, is how it resonates as I listen to you. You know, I think a lot of people look at things like this and they think, wow, the the head of the snake has been cut off. You know, our suffering is over. We don't really have to worry about Al Qaeda anymore. Now, I know that when you were at RAND, you wrote this book about how terrorist groups end, and you had two main sort of conclusions from your studies. And I wonder if you think that Zawahiri's death heralds the end of AQ or could serve as something else entirely.
0: Well, I think it's unlikely, first of all, that we'll see an end of Salafi Jihadist militancy. I mean, we see various aspects of Islamic State activity in Syria, in Iraq. We see them involved in Afghanistan under Khorasan province. We see various... Uh, affiliates of Al Qaeda operating in West Africa, including in Mali, Somalia, including Al Shabaab, North Africa, various elements around Idlib of Syria, and then obviously in other regions, including Afghanistan, where actually Al Qaeda now has a government under the Taliban that they have long standing relationships. And it's probably worth reminding all the listeners here that every Al Qaeda leader has pledged bayat or loyalty to the various Taliban leaders. First, Mullah Omar, then Mullah Mansour, and then uh, Mullah Kunsada, the current leader of the Taliban. So there's a historic relationship today. It's relatively close with the Haqqanis. But what we do see at the top of Al-Qaeda, even in the region, is individuals like Saif al who spent most of his time in Iran, Abdul al-Rahman al-Maghrebi, a Moroccan national son-in-law of Zawahri, also very influential at the top level of al-Qaeda, believed likely to be at least partly in Iran as well. These are all individuals who continue to be active at senior levels of al-Qaeda. So I, I don't think this means, by any means, an end to the organization or to militancy. What we probably are looking at, and based on the work that I did in the How Terrorist Groups End, is we still see a lot of opportunities for groups to operate in a range of different countries. And Afghanistan probably among the most interesting because it's got support for Al-Qaeda at the very top of the government.
1: Thanks, I'd like to switch though for just a second because I think all of this and some of the other things that we're watching right now in the world sort of raise an issue that we keep talking about over and over again on this podcast, which is that America's tendency towards short-term thinking is almost a national security threat. And I know that you've written Three Dangerous Men. I'd like for you to talk a little bit about the national security approach in this country and what you think or what you have concluded we might need to change in order to not witness, you know, the sunset of this greatest experiment in democracy in the world.
0: Yeah, I think that what that book really focuses on is I think we we certainly saw it in the National Defense Strategy under the previous administration. We've seen it in the interim national security strategy in the Biden administration and the publicly announced parts of the current national defense strategy, which is really a focus on China and to some degree Russia as really the major part of US national security strategy and a a clear move away from countering terrorist organizations. I think what I would just Highlight here are two things I think that are worth noting. One is that there still are a range of terrorist groups operating that do threaten the United States. Some of whom are reside in the United States itself, and we've certainly seen them active. Extremists from various violent far right or violent far left groups, and then we've also had some plots from Salafi jihadists in the U.S. And we see, as we've just talked about, threats from other areas. In addition, we certainly see a range of states operating by with and through partner organizations you might even call them proxies to some degree so in the russian activities in syria the main elements of the maneuver force not only included the syrian government including its higher-end tiger units but also lebanese hezbollah as a major component to the ground operations in cities like aleppo we've seen the iranians continually work with groups like lebanese hezbollah the Hashd al-shabi the uh, popular mobilization units in iraq Uh, we've seen them operate and work with the Houthis in Yemen. So what we have seen is actually, in many ways, kind of a mixing of state and non-state actors operating. And you can even add some of the private military companies that the Russians have worked with. So it's an argument really that it is important to understand the threat that Russia and China and other major states pose and the need to build conventional and even in some cases, you know, nuclear capabilities to deter them or if deterrence fails to, to deal with them otherwise, but not to ignore that some of these other threats, including these blending are likely to continue for, for the foreseeable future. And that's those are really some of the key takeaways.
1: Thanks for sharing that. I mean, I have a. I think some of these things have been discussed recently in the news, including like the Wagner militias, which are now active all over Africa, where, of course, a lot of the world's best enriched minerals and other resources can be found. And the extraction industry is thriving in a lot of those countries. And they have a weak central government, a low rule of law, and um, an appetite for corruption that would make it very easy for um, some of these groups to operate. What we'll do, listeners, is we're going to hyperlink to Seth's books in the notes to this cast. If you have a chance, you might want to take a look at those. I really appreciate you coming on, Seth. And I hope we get to talk to you again in the future as these events unfold. And we always value your opinions and thoughts and your knowledge on these subjects.
0: Well, thank you very much.
1: All right, and also here tonight though is one of the uh, people that we love to talk to too. And that's Jamil Jaffer, who is the founder and executive director of the National Security Institute and an assistant professor of law and director of their national security law and policy program. And the nation's first cyber intelligence and national security, LLM, at the Antonin Scalia School of Law at George Mason University. He's basically done everything. He's worked in every institution in Washington. Really, you turn around, he's inside another building doing something important. But one of the things that he did is he was on the leadership team at the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, and he served as chief counsel and legal advisor. So, Jamil, I always like to talk to you when things are unfolding. You've always got great ideas. Glad to see you.
2: Good to be here. Thanks, Elizabeth.
1: All right, let's talk about some of the what I thought were pretty seismic things that have happened over the last couple of weeks, not all of which have received the attention and glare of the press. And last week we briefly discussed Kathy Warden, Northrop Grumman's CEO's statement, where she called on Western governments to quote provide a clear demand signal if the defense industry was going to be needed to provide the weapons for a prolonged war in Ukraine. She didn't stop there. She went on to say, I wouldn't necessarily say that I've heard we're running out. But if you do project forward that we're going to want to sustain these levels of commitments for another couple of years, that's certainly not what anyone had built stockpiles to accommodate. How do you react to this? What do you think are any legal issues embedded here?
2: Well, it's a great question. Um, you know, I'm not sure about the legal issues, and we should talk about that. But I think it, with respect to the stockpile issue and the question of U.S. capabilities, Certainly, Kathy Ward makes a good point, right? I mean, we had not planned on providing the amount, scale, and scope of weaponry to Ukraine uh, that we have done so thus far. Over nine billion dollars since the Biden administration started, eleven point five, roughly billion. Uh, in total, worth of military that we provided to Ukraine since the first Russian invasion of Crimea back in 2014. So, you know, the Biden administration is certainly to be credited for the amount and scale and scope of weaponry that provided to Ukraine. I wish they had done more earlier on to try and prevent this Russian invasion from happening to deter it. Uh, but here we are, and they're to get the credit for it. But Kathy Warden's right. You know, uh, we are drawing down on American stockpiles now. Northrop Grumman itself, you know, is providing these Bushmaster. Automatic cannons, mid-sized ammunition, the Global Hawk. RQ-4 has been making surveillance flights on behalf of NATO and the U.S. Air Force. But, you know, the other defense providers, too, you know, Lockheed Martin, Raytheon, and the like. We were talking about Javelin missiles. We're talking about the Stinger missiles, both of which have been extremely effective in this fight. Uh, The HIMARS systems and the like. We only have so many of those. Now, we haven't bought Stingers in a long time, to be sure. Other countries have. But these are capabilities that we want to replenish. And so there's no doubt that we'll need to backfill those stocks. Part of the funding uh, that Congress is appropriate is to backfill. But we need to also let our defense contractors know ahead of time that, you know, if we're going to be needing to backfill these, they need capability. And don't forget raw materials. Some of these things require titanium. A lot of that comes from Russia. We have sanctions in place. So a lot to be thought about here uh, as we look forward to replenishing our own supplies in this, in this context.
1: Yeah, and this gets back to what Seth and I were just briefly discussing, which is we really do need to learn to take a longer term view of things. And I think a lot of the way we meet out these appropriations on an annual basis and after much sort of horse trading and nonsense does undermine, I think, our long-term goals here when we're up against a nation like China that has set a 50-year plan. But moving on to China, you know, Speaker Pelosi went over to Taiwan and China you know, had a conniption. They're still flying aircraft over Taiwan right now. And they have gone ahead and they've now sanctioned Fiker Pelosi with their economic sanctions, as well as her immediate family. Apparently, that wasn't enough for them. They really wanted to do a smackdown, which you know, let's hope is a, a short-term show. So they have now cut communications with the U.S. military, they refuse to cooperate on a number of issues some of which are you know massive national security concerns such as climate change drug trafficking repatriation of illegal immigrants and a lot of other issues and they're continuing to fly these military air drills they've upped the amount of pro china propaganda that they're spitting out and the amount of anti american propaganda on the social media platforms that frankly Feel like and probably are engines of the Chinese Communist Party. And this is all happening against the backdrop of the failure of Evergrande, which for our listeners, I don't know how to describe this. Please, you know, jump in when you want, but it's a huge corporation and they have all these high rise apartment buildings all over China. And the goal of every middle class Chinese family is to own one of these apartments. And apparently, the way it works you pay for these things in advance, you cash out. And this is really becoming a problem because it doesn't look like Chairman Xi's really done anything to really get Evergrande back on track or to get these people their money back. How do you react to this, given your extensive experience? And what do you think about this?
2: Well, look, I mean, I think that, uh, you know, it was wholly predictable um, that China would respond negatively to uh, Speaker Pelosi's visit. Frankly, That was the goal, right? The idea was that we were going to make a point that we support Taiwan, that China can't be uh, engaging in the aggressive activities that's been undertaken against Taiwan, dozens upon dozens of air incursions into Taiwan's air defense zone, long before Speaker Pelosi went, all sorts of missile tests in the waters in the Taiwan Strait, um, in the nearby waters, aircraft carriers in the region, theming and threatening Taiwan, as well as, you know, all sorts of aggressive words by the Chinese government against uh, the Taiwanese people and the government there. This is not new. To be sure, it's been amped up to a huge degree, given Speaker Pelosi's visit, the first visit in 25 years by the third-ranking person in the U.S. leadership, the Speaker of the House, third in line to the presidency. And so no doubt the Chinese were going to get upset. To Speaker Pelosi's credit, she persevered through the threats made by China. She persevered against the Biden administration's recommendation, the White House's recommendation that she not go, that it was too provocative. She went. She made her point. Everyone said, oh, this is going to start a war. This is going to cause a blockade. None of those things happened. They didn't attack her plane as they threatened they might. And Speaker Pelosi was on the ground. She made the point. She said, we're going to back Taiwan. And that's a good message to send to the Chinese, make clear that we can go wherever we want. We've always had this unique relationship. Yes, we've had a one China policy, recognizing the government in Beijing as the official Chinese government since 1979. But also since 1979, we've had the Taiwan Relations Act, which creates a certain level of diplomatic relations with Taiwan, makes clear that we will sell weapons to Taiwan. And that even though we recognize China's view, and we recognize that China has the view that it has sovereignty over Taiwan. We've never expressly recognized China's explicit sovereignty over Taiwan. And so to the contrary, we've sold weapons to them uh, over time. So look, I mean, the Chinese are getting more and more aggressive. You point out that they've uh, engaged in more air incursions, more live fire drills for the last five, six days. They're going to continue to conduct military exercises in the Yellow Sea and the Bohai Sea near the Korean Peninsula. But let's be clear, all the big threats, all the hand that, oh, if Pelosi goes, the world will come to a crashing halt and it will begin a war. None of that was correct. Nancy Pelosi went. She made the right point. She stood up not only to the Chinese, but frankly, to the White House. And I think it was the right thing to do. So, you know, count me on Team Pelosi on this one.
1: Yeah, it's kind of interesting because uh, the BBC was showing footage of her, which I had forgotten. She does. Let's point out, you know, she's from California. She's from San Francisco, which has, you know, contains the largest Chinese and Taiwanese diaspora, you know, in the world outside of China. These are her constituents. The video that they showed depicted her, you know, holding a sign and protesting back after the Tiananmen Square incidents. And for some of our young listeners, if you don't know what that is, for God's sakes, look it up. It's very important. It was a moment when the Chinese people decided to stand up to the Chinese communist government and they were basically run over with tanks. It was really something. It was an absolute suppression of of the will of the Chinese people. And she stood up back then. So this is not new for her. It's consistent. She's being herself. She's She's just being Nancy. Good for her. I thought that was very interesting. Now, I would say this, the Financial Times, at least, is reporting that the United States Treasury did not sanction China's number three in command when they had the opportunity to do so. And she would be, as Speaker of the House, the third in line for succession. So I do sometimes wonder you know, why they're suddenly sanctioning her and what consequences could ensue, though I, I know it's not our practice to do this tit-for-tat retaliation. It's just not our way. So tell me what else you're seeing this week and what your thoughts are on sort of the next thing that might happen with this sort of exchange with China.
2: Well, look, I mean, on the on the question of sanctions, the Chinese government has imposed sanctions, as you pointed out, on, on Nancy Speaker Pelosi and, and her family. Not clear what those sanctions are in the past. Uh, there have been restrictions on entering, you know, China, Hong Kong, Macau, we're doing business there, of course, for Nancy Pelosi. She's not planning, I don't think, on going to any of those places or doing any business there. So largely symbolic, if that's in fact what's been imposed upon her. You know, we did resist, as you point out, putting sanctions on their legislative leader, their number three official, Lee jean um, over his role in the national security law that was imposed on Hong Kong. Back in 2020, the highest ranking member of the Chinese government to face U.S. sanctions was a member of their Politburo, the vice chairman of their legislature, I guess the number four, maybe the number five in the Chinese leadership. You know, of course, the Chinese also sanctioned former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo because of his words about China. So both he and President Trump, uh, and then later on, President Biden, referring to the treatment of Uyghur Muslim minority in China as a genocide. So this is not the first time we've seen this show, but again, Speaker Pelosi doing the right thing, standing up to the Chinese government um, and, and taking the sanctions for it. Should the Biden administration get tougher with China? I mean, I think the answer is clearly yes. And the Chinese government clearly is not clear on whether we defend Taiwan. In an actual conflict scenario, the president has repeatedly said that we would. His White House, within seconds of him saying it, walks it back every time. says, well, you know, we haven't committed to that. You know, we might, we might not. We'll certainly supply them with the weaponry they need. But of course, that actually is a larger issue, Elizabeth, which is to say, um, you know, the Taiwanese military today is not structured to fight the kind of conflict it needs to fight to defend itself against China. It needs a lot more surface missiles. It needs a lot more anti-ship mines. Uh, The U.S., frankly, military is not positioned well in the region. We have the USS Ronald Reagan, the carrier group there. Yes, but we don't have enough forces to go toe-to-toe with the Chinese Navy if it wanted to go full force into Taiwan. There are a lot of reasons it won't, probably, in the near future, because it's not really prepared to engage that kind of amphibious landing it needs to to engage in uh, to really take the island by full force, but could it cause a lot of trouble and potentially put a trade blockage in place, an embargo? Certainly, and that could be problematic in and of itself, particularly given the semiconductor supply chain crisis that we're already seeing and the U.S. reliance on Taiwan for advanced semiconductors. So there's a lot to be thinking about here and a lot more damage the Chinese can do. But they should understand, they rely on our economy quite a bit too. They sell a lot of stuff to us. We can make it very fa- painful for them, just as painful as they can make it for us and for Taiwan. So this isn't just a one-for-one swap. We'll see what happens over the, over the next few weeks and months. But you know, these are hard questions. And, and good on Nancy Pelosi for doing what she did.
1: Yeah, it'll be interesting to see now that, you know, we've passed the CHIPS Act and they're building an actual pallet, which I think is going to take like half a decade at least up in Ohio, which has been, you know, ravaged by unemployment. And it's obvious when you're up there that, you know, once proud people are are living in Rust Belt areas right now. So I'm looking forward to seeing them get opportunities. They haven't for a while. But it does also come back to, you know, we were just talking about a little bit with Seth, which is, you know, this sort of show of force by Xi, it's kind of an interesting fact, because apparently, at least according to the article in the New York Times, which interviewed or contained a statement by a diplomat who had dealt with Xi, and I mean, you probably saw this basically 10 years ago, he was more candid. And he was saying things like he worried with the Arab Spring that there could be such a thing that might occur in China, maybe not looking like a religiously based movement, but something more akin to a human rights wave. And I wonder to a degree if some of this flexing isn't because this Evergrande thing is not small. The CEO of Evergrande shortly before this entire thing collapsed had apparently a $1 billion party which was well covered, except, of course, on the Chinese social media, where I think they fully suppressed that, even though some messages on that score got out. But this actually presents pretty serious crisis, I think, for Chairman Xi. I think there's no question in my mind.
2: Yeah, look, I think that's an important point. I think that he is concerned about his position. We've seen on a regular basis, you know, both in Russia, uh, where Putin also has concerns for his own stature, and in China, where Chairman Xi has, has concerns about his stature, they will engage in foreign adventures or, you know, rabble rouse overseas, rabble rouse in the region and with Taiwan like, to regain that national sentiment to get their backing back in place. This is not unusual for um, people who have authoritarian regimes and want to maintain one party control over a government. This is a very common theme we see happening. And it certainly may be part of what's going on here. He is up for his, you know, sort of re-election, quote unquote, as it were his third, ter- for his third term as party chairman. Uh, so we'll see how that plays out. He's almost certain to succeed at that. But there's no doubt that he may be concerned, as you point out, with the economic challenges that they're facing. Um, and on your point about the CHIPS Act and the like, I think certainly heartened to see the U.S. government Congress come together and actually in a bipartisan way pass that legislation um, and start rebuilding our ability to have trusted foundries here in the United States. That being said, you know, one of the big stories that hasn't been told and really wasn't addressed in that legislation was the sale by American and allied manufacturers of the tooling needed to create both advanced and large-scale, you know, commodity semiconductors to China, right? Uh, American companies like, well, there's a variety of them, plus ASML in Norway, LAM Research is one of them. You know, these companies are selling huge amounts of tooling to China that's something we need to get a hold on, including for, by the way, commodity semiconductors, because those are the semiconductors that go into our cars and the like. Um, and if China has a stranglehold on those, even if we building capacity for advanced semiconductors here, that's going to be a problem long term. We can actually control their ability to develop these things by restricting the sale of tooling. Of course, that will cost our economy some amount of money. But now that we're starting to build semiconductors here, those tools can be sold here at a minimum, at a minimum. American and allied manufacturers should get priority of anything that's funded by U.S. government dollars or that U.S. government chips act dollars are used for if they're buying from American or allied tooling manufacturers, they ought to be giving priority to those purchases. And so, you know, I will see how that all plays out. The the government doesn't have the ability to restrict exports, but has been wary of doing so because of the concerns about the economic impact on these manufacturers here in the United States.
1: Yeah, that's fascinating. I I wasn't aware of that. So that's new to me. We have talked a lot about the CHIPS Act and we have interviewed, you know, the spokesperson from Intel on this topic. And I know that in our conversation, that certainly didn't come up, but there's always a point of vulnerability in any of this legislation that is going to have to be addressed subsequently and probably through some sort of sanctions. Separately, and to your point here about the economy in China, I would note, in case people don't know this, That even Apple, which has an enormous presence in China in terms of the manufacturing and so on, has finally tired of the uh, no COVID policy and what it's done to their ability to get their product out. And I know that they are shutting down at least one factory and they're talking about leaving other places. That in and of itself, if that were to become a groundswell or a movement among a lot of these companies, I think that would be a real blow to Chairman Xi. And he really needs to think seriously when he's flying these sorties and and carrying on about the potential secondary and tertiary consequences of this display of force.
2: Absolutely. And look, I mean, if if anybody wanted to shut down or or rebuild American semiconductor manufacturing overnight, remove TSMC, the Taiwan semiconductor company's ability to sell huge amounts or under threat from China, or frankly, the Chinese ability to sell semiconductors, uh, let's be clear, that's Apple. Apple makes all or the vast majority of its phones in China. It gets the vast majority of semiconductors, particularly its new A-series and M1 and M2 semiconductors, from TSMC right there under right the from China. If Apple wanted to move any of that production to the United States, yes, it might come at a higher cost. I think consumers would be willing to pay that, frankly. A lot of us are Apple fans. You know, we're happy to pay whatever it costs for, for an Apple device, whether it's you know, X or Y. But let's be honest. Tim Cook could overnight change the game on American semiconductor capabilities if he were to choose to do so. He hasn't, frankly, the Biden administration put pressure on him like, given Apple's commitment to privacy and human rights and the like, if that's really what they're about, why are they manufacturing all these phones in a place that interns a million Muslims in labor camps and oppresses Christians, Buddhists and the like all across the country and treats democracy activists you know terribly in Hong Kong and threatens an ally like Taiwan? I mean that's the big question, right? By the way, I remember the name of those companies. It's uh, it's ASML in Norway. Applied materials, land reach for the U.S., and then a couple of companies in Japan, uh, including Tokyo Electron. So those are the manufacturers that's tooling who, you know, if we put pressure on, could really help us control the Chinese capabilities to create these semiconductors in their own country.
1: Yeah, I, it's an interesting point that you make, though. But let's go back just a minute to this concept of privacy. So I feel like this is a tech news speak at the end of the day. And I think Americans have been snowed on this you're the product, there really is no privacy. And so I do love it when Apple says these things because I just think it's it's propaganda. I, I don't believe it. And I think everybody needs to understand that to the extent that there's anything in the supply chain, you know, that's compromised at any point because it's manufactured in China, not only do you not have privacy, you're the product, every app you use that's tracking your location is gonna be sold to a data aggregator for purposes of targeted advertising. But on top of that, you know our greatest national security threat is gonna have access to your data because under the Chinese cybersecurity law, basically the code of everything that is brought to China, built in China, Any company that's operating there, it must be turned over to the Chinese government, and they may have their own national security reasons for that, but there's no parity, there's no requirement in the United States of America for that, and we're highly vulnerable, and just because of our interconnectivity, our interdependence with China, I, I do think you're right. I think this is a lot of show. I wonder if it'll dissipate, and I wonder how quickly...
2: Yeah, look, I'm a big fan of Apple devices. Every single device I have in this house that I operate my computing on, I've got, you know, like a gazillion iPads and MacBooks and whatever. But I will say this, I am troubled by, you know, the fact that we make all these devices there where, you know, Apple will comply. And finally, at their own expense, right, they put their IP uh, in China, you know, making it accessible to the Chinese as part of the deal to manufacture stuff there and to sell into the Chinese market. I think that's a real challenge. It's, I think, economically, they're gonna have to make a really tough call about the Chinese market and the low-cost manufacturing Uh, versus really providing Americans the kind of privacy and security that we want. We now have learned a lot over the last two years uh, about our reliance on China for PPE, pharma school precursors. You know, we're now seeing what they're doing. We saw what they did in Hong Kong. We're seeing what they're doing in Taiwan. We're now really learning what they've done to these Muslims, interned a million of them in these prison camps. I think there might be a lot of pressure on American companies, whether it's Apple or otherwise. There are a lot of Americans that do business in China, a lot of Americans that manufacture in China. The American people have got to say, look, we've had enough, right? We're not going to accept this kind of behavior. There was, you know, this old philosophy that we all had that if we just brought capitals into China, right, that they would sort of come around and human rights would, you know, democracy would flourish. It turns out, China's really one of something. They've adopted their own form of authoritarian capitalism. Uh, they now oppress their own people very effectively through WeChat and all these other capabilities. And then they've been exporting their global repression capabilities, technology, and the like, through manufacturing these Huawei devices that a lot of people are buying and frankly, potentially exploiting American devices that are being built there. You know, if you order a custom-built Apple MacBook like I have in the past, it gets shipped directly to you from China. It's not like it's going to some retailer or the like. So if you want a MacBook, probably better to go to your Apple store and just buy one off the shelf rather than having it shipped directly because there is a very real threat there.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. Again, our short-term thinking, we're just relieved that now we can get access to the PPE. We're willing to forget and move on. We want that you know, same day delivery of whatever sort of China made tchotchke. And we want a lot of stuff instead of having a few nice things and paying American artisans, but that's the frame of mind that we're in right now. And we don't have a 50 year plan. So I don't know, I feel like you should draft one. What do you think?
2: Listen, I think at a minimum, uh, we need to be thinking about our industrial base and making sure that we have the right defense industrial base and capabilities for the long fight with China. Making sure that where there are national security needs, like semiconductors, we're investing the time and money and making sure the capability is here and not letting it go overseas, or at least with our allies. And then frankly, you know, we've got to go back to putting real money into basic research and the kind of basic science that has made America so innovative, right? A lot of it has come with the US government priming the pump. And you know, oftentimes you hear conservatives. I served my entire career in Republican administrations and Republican members of the House and working for Republican members of the House and the Senate. Uh, including in political campaigns you know and and republicans tend to shy away from things like industrial policy for good reason the government is very bad at picking winners and losers and it's very bad at engaging in market mechanisms that being said we've always had some amount of the government putting money into basic research we've always had government sending contracts long-term contracts to companies in key industries like like defense and telecom it is not crazy in fact it's common sense for us to do the same in technology and by the way the idea that we should be going around trying to take down our biggest technology companies and going aggressively with them because we got political problems with them, whether you're a conservative and you hate them because, you know, they oppress you know, conservatives online or you're a liberal and you hate what they do to labor, right? You know, we've got a bipartisan group going specifically after our technology companies at a time when they are the heart of our engine fighting the real campaign against China. It's crazy. It makes no sense. Cherry picking the best and largest companies for special treatment in the actual sauce is insane. We have to stop doing that and, you know, focusing on what's right, which is, If you are behaving anti-competitively, let's go after them, let's prosecute them, let's bring them to justice, but changing the laws to go after big companies because they're just too big or too mean to conservatives or too mean to organize labor, that's just silly.
1: Well, I don't think too many Democrats would disagree with you on that point either. I just think we're in a period of time right now where we're trying to drive forward some social policies that may be conflicting with our long-term interests, and that's hard. That's always a tricky thing because we do want a country that welcomes everybody. We do want an equal system that invites everybody, regardless of who they are and where they came from, to succeed. And that's what makes us better. But it is clashing up against sort of the harsh reality of dealing with these despotic rulers and sort of the menace that they currently present, including Russia, including China. Well, Jamil, it's always great to talk to you. You're a boatload of fun. You're always a reasonable guy and a fun guy, and you have great ideas. So I hope we get to talk to you again soon.
2: Love it. Glad to do it. Thanks so much for having me.
1: Thanks for tuning in to NSLT. We do not take your time or your attention for granted. We ask that you share this episode with a friend, maybe talk about these issues over coffee. When you've read Seth's books, remember that all the national security laws that are discussed or referenced in there are condensed into one volume, and that is the National Security Law Resource Book, which you can find in the notes of this cast. You can read it in bright sunlight. It doesn't reflect like your phone does or your iPad, and you can take it into a skiff without sending off bells and whistles and having to explain yourself later to a security officer. You can also leave it sitting on your desk where people you want to see and want to impress will get to see it. And just remember that you should subscribe to NSLT. We would really appreciate that. We would appreciate your positive comments. You know, send us feedback. If you have topics you want us to cover, things you want us to talk about, reach out to us on Twitter at ABA NatSec or send us an email at nationalsecurity@americanbar.org. We also recommend you go back and listen to our various podcasts on the CHIPS Act, as well as multiple podcasts that we have done on the topic of China. We will hyperlink some of those, but we invite you to listen to them. Many of them will appear oppression. And don't forget that the lawyers hosting this podcast were here in our individual capacity and not on behalf of any agency or firm. Be well, and we'll see you next time. Hey, listeners. This fall, our committee celebrates its
0: 60th anniversary. Founded in 1962, what is now the ABA Standing Committee on Law and National Security was first established as a committee on education about communism. To commemorate our anniversary, we're launching The Past 10 Years, The Next 10 Years, an anthology of national security law. These articles capture the history, growth, and development of the committee, the nation, and the world's evolution in national security law. The articles will be released as a series through our website and will later be compiled into an ebook that can be downloaded or printed as needed. Check out the link in the description for more. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association, and this recording should not be construed as representing ABA policy.